0: You go ahead and turn to to James, we're still in chapter one, we're going to be in chapter one longer than we've ever been in probably any other chapter one of any book up to this point, I don't know. James chapter one, our verses today are going to be verses five through eight. If you have a device, you can go to the ESV version so you can uh, stay tracking with us. Well, last week we were instructed by James, who by the way is the half-brother of Jesus, Um, who is writing to these scattered, persecuted Jewish Christians, we learned last week to consider it a joy or a gift when we encounter trials. Of all things, of all the things we don't want to do, of all the places that we're not generally moved or leaned into when we're experiencing hardships, Paul says, consider it a joy. Consider it a gift when you encounter trials because... This is proof that God is testing us in order to increase the steadfastness of our faith. James understands that when Christians experience trials and testing, they often find themselves in places where it's hard to maintain objectivity. You guys know how this feels practically? You've ever been caught in one of those, like you're driving down I-71, you get caught in one of those crazy rainstorms where it's not just coming down, but it's like coming down. It's coming down to the point where you just, you can't even see three or four feet in front of you. So you're on this major highway and you've slowed down to about five or 10 miles an hour. And then if you're like me, you're like, did the guy behind me slow down to five or 10 miles an hour? Because I just can't see anything in front of me. And should I pull over? And hey, look, there's that poor sap on the motorcycle that made the wrong choice this morning, right? Like all that stuff's going through my head, but it's because everything is so obscured. I don't have any objectivity about what's in front of me on the road. I remember, man, you guys remember Y2K? Anybody old enough to remember that, right? Yeah, the big scare of the year 2000. Well, we were, uh, you know, being the brilliant people we were, we were living in California. We were driving to Los Angeles at the time. And uh, this is on, on New Year's Eve, you know, right, right as the clocks are about to turn and the, and the whole world was going to blow up because of Y2K. And um, and again, it's, it starts raining, and it starts raining really hard. And one thing you gotta understand about California is they don't know what rain is. like Because it rains there like once every five or 10 years. And so when it does rain, all the oil in the asphalt, it kind of rises up in the, in the, and the roads are really slippery, so everyone kind of freaks out, right? And I remember we're on our way up to LA, going up the I-5 north, and um, man, it starts raining, and that's, that's danger, danger, right? And uh, this guy just comes passing us on the right. Dude's going about 70, 75 miles an hour, which normally would be slow in California, you know? That's a guy that's getting run over, right? But he's just charging along, acting like the rain's no big deal. Oil, road, what? What's the problem here? So about two miles after this guy passes up, we're kind of bending the curve on I-5. And all of a sudden, we start seeing all of these, like, shattered car parts all over the road, and it was this guy who had turned the corner, spun out, and smacked up against the, uh, the, the, the middle divider there. So I say all this to remind us that when we get into places in our life where vision is low, we lose a sense of objectivity, right? The answer that James has for us this morning is to do this. Ask God for wisdom and not just any wisdom but to ask what he calls the wisdom from above. Let's go to chapter 3 verse 17. I read this last week because this is the kind of wisdom James is asking us to ask for. It's a wisdom from above that is first pure, this is James 3:17, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Then he says this in 18, he says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this is what we know about the wisdom from above. It's not what we learn from fortune cookies, right? That's not what James is getting at here. Just these clever phrases wrapped in something that tastes unbelievably dry, by the way, right? It's not the words of Yoda, sage advice, that sounds, you know, thought-provoking, but at the end of the day, it carries very little practical application for our lives. No, the wisdom from above is not only getting the right information and doing the right thing, but it's an inner transformation of the heart toward Jesus that leads to right actions. Now, because the Bible tells us that even doing the right thing with the wrong motivation is still sin. It means we have to seek a particular kind of wisdom that isn't just making the right decision, isn't just doing the right thing, but it flows from something inside of us that leans us and draws us to the very wisdom of God, who is Jesus Christ, all right? So the question that is, how do we obtain this wisdom from above? How do we obtain it in order to flourish during the trials and testing we face? That's our question. Well, today, the message James has for needy, vulnerable, have no clue what we're doing churches like ours is this. God has the wisdom we need, so we need to ask him for it. But we need to be careful how we ask. Let's pick up in chapter 1, verse 5. This is what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the first thing that James is teaching us today is that we need to discern that we lack wisdom. We need to be able to discern that we even lack it at all. James isn't saying, hey, if you're lacking wisdom, go ahead and ask God, but if not, great. Just keep moving on. Just keep progressing in life. That's like saying, if any of you thinks he might seem, need some air to breathe today, just go ahead and ask, but if not, great, you'll be fine. You won't be fine, Right? So it's not whether we have the lack, it's knowing just how deep our lack actually is. How do we open up the service today? Well, with a song called Come Ye Sinners. And there was a line in that said, all the fitness he requires is to see your need of him. You never have to remind a drowning person that they need help. They know it. And if you're standing near them and you see their arms and you see them grasping for air, you can see it. So this kind of discernment that James is talking about, this kind of godly discernment, is knowing that in every trial and testing, you will have a deficit when it comes to what you can see and what you can know. It's knowing that you don't know, Right? Because when we face trials, we can just freeze up. And a lot of times we do freeze up. We can come to bad conclusions about what to do when we're in the middle of them. Worse yet, we can fail to go to God because we feel shame. Like there's something wrong with us. And yet James told us last week that Christians need to think accurately about trials. Remembering that they come from God for the sake of increasing the steadfastness of our faith. They are not for nothing. Trials are not God's way of shaming you. Isn't that interesting? But it can feel like that sometimes. So it's important for us to see them as the occasion God uses to humble us so we see that we have a lack of wisdom. And then we go to him to obtain it. Now maybe you hated going to your parents because they always seemed bothered and annoyed when you needed something or you needed some wisdom or you needed them to help you with something. Can you just figure it out yourself? I'm busy. I'm not saying there's never a time to say that. Not, never not a time to say that, right? Sometimes there is. But it's understandable for us to think of God like this. He can't be bothered. He can't be annoyed. Shouldn't I have this figured out already? Shouldn't these problems be something that I have progressed past? Shouldn't my faith be at a place to where I'm not even messing with this kind of stuff anymore? So what that does then is it pollutes our understanding and sense of who God is. Instead we should rely on on God's generosity, which is my second point. So first we need to discern that we lack wisdom and secondly, we need to rely on God's generosity, which is what James drives at here in verse five. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Listen, God is generous to the point that if you think of the most generous person you have ever met, They're the tiniest fraction of how generous God is. Think of like a grain of sugar versus a five-layer chocolate cake, right? Mmm. Somebody told me the other day, so what baking analogy are you going to give this Sunday in your sermon? I said, none, except for this five-layer chocolate cake. But one thing, that grain of sugar, it gives you a tiny hint of sweetness. It does, it's there. But the other is like this avalanche of flavor in your mouth. This is what we need to remember about God, is that he is so unhesitatingly delighted to give you the wisdom you ask for, that when you receive it and when you apply it, you'll wonder why you ever hesitated. He gives without reproach. He's not stingy. He's not saying, well, you know, I only have so much. I got to dole this out. That's what we do. It's kind of like asking a friend if you can borrow a dollar. And before you finish getting the words out of your mouth, they have direct deposited $10,000 into your checking account. God is not just a pretty generous guy. He is the embodiment of generosity. That's what James is leading us to understand here. And look at what he says in verse 17. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So that goes back to what we said one second ago, which is that unlike the way that we give, which a lot of times has strings attached, or it has limitations, we can only give so much. God doesn't have strings attached, he doesn't have limitations to what he has the ability to give us. He gives good gifts. He gave his only son the best gift ever given. So when you ask for wisdom, he pours it out upon you from a heart that has already poured out his only son, which, by the way, is the pinnacle of his wisdom. The generosity of God is a generosity of another kind. And doesn't it say, listen to this, Doesn't it say a lovely thing about God that something as important as wisdom is ours simply by asking? And could this reality help in changing the way that you see God? The way you've been seeing God maybe all these years? Instead of a mean old curmudgeon yelling at the kids and the angels to stay off his lawn? He is actually overflowing with the most generous heart and existence to give you the thing you need most. The world says this ask me for anything but be prepared to pay. But this is what the Apostle John says in 1st John 5 he says and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will the according to his will part is really important there he hears us. God wouldn't dream of charging you for the wisdom you need because you don't have anywhere near what it costs to pay it. But Jesus did. And such is the love and the generosity of God. So it's a privilege of the Christian, for the Christian, to rely on the generosity of the one, by the way, who created the concept of generosity. But then we get to verses 6 through 8, and James warns us that we need to be careful how we ask, which is to ask in faith with no doubting. Now, when we first read this, we think, golly, James, I don't think I've ever asked anything from God without some percentage of doubt, have I? And the answer is, you haven't. I mean, James makes it sound like if there's any doubt in our asking, then we won't receive the wisdom God's asking us to ask for. Didn't we learn from D.A. Carson last week, this quote, that it's not the amount of faith, but the object of our faith that matters? Well, Kent Hughes, uh, a, a theologian, pastor, he helps us here. This is what he says. He says, James is not referring to one who is wrestling with doubt, that's all of us, but one who has two minds. He looks to God with one mind, and then he says, I really have no need with the other mind. And Dr. Ken Hughes says, we must ask wholeheartedly for the wisdom that we need. So Double-mindedness is what James means when he talks about asking in faith without doubting. So here is the double-minded person. The double-minded person is someone who says, I'll see what God has to offer, but if I've signed something better, I'll likely go with option number two. So they might ask God for wisdom, but will only use it if it lines up with what's most pleasing to themselves. Now, of course, the problem is that the wisdom from above isn't the most appealing wisdom to our flesh. James is warning us that coming to God like we're shopping for car insurance and trying to find the best deal is the characteristic of an unstable person, which is why this is my third point. We have to guard against double-mindedness. We have to guard against double-mindedness. It's in our nature to distrust God, do you know that? It's in our nature to distrust God and his generosity toward us. It's kind of like it was back in the garden with Adam and Eve, not a lot has changed. Our hearts say back to us, did God really say? Is he really for you? Is Jesus really the way, the truth, and the life? Is he really your best option? Does he have your best interest in mind? Is there some other path? Is there some other way? Is there some other person? Is there some other decision that is going to feel better? That is going to seem like a better way? That is going to be more satisfying? Unfortunately, the answer is, yes, there is. When we're talking about our flesh, because our flesh craves those things that are against what God has for us. It's that line, it's those lines of unreasonable reasoning that have really never been stopped whispering in our ear. So we have to guard against the worldly folly that is double-mindedness because, as James points out, it's evidence of instability in the life of a Christian. I recently experienced instability last month when we went snorkeling in Moorhead City, North Carolina. Everything was fine. We're on the boat ride. We're going about 16, 17, I can't look at my wife right now. We're going about 16, 17 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean. We're going to visit some, do some snorkeling over this like, You know, this wreckage, right? Blackbeard's, you know, wrecked, I don't know, ship. I'm making that up. I don't know. Um, So we get out there. You know, I've always had a little bit of a seasickness thing, but I was feeling great. I'm optimistic. Looking at my gear, going to hop in the water. My wife is pumped. And the boat stops. And all the swaying starts. And literally before I could even get out into the water, it was over for me. I never felt that sick in my life since the, well, the last time I was on a boat. Um, That's the way that James describes a person who asks God, not expecting to get the wisdom that is most generous and most applicable and most right for their life. They are an unstable person. They are like waves being tossed to and fro. We shouldn't expect that if we treat God like he's just another option in a long line of decisions for us that we're going to receive the kind of wisdom that we want. Why? Because that right there is not wisdom. And maybe that's been a pattern characteristic of you. Maybe that's been a pattern that's characteristic of your life. I can go back and tell you decisions in my life, moments in my life, that that pattern's been very characteristic in my life. So we need to guard against, James is telling us, against the instability of double-mindedness. How do we do that? Well, we do that by fearing God, all right? Well, that, that sounds strange. How does fearing God remove that instability from our life? Well, Proverbs 1.7 tells us this. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so when we say fear God, what we're saying is we are seeing God for who he really is, which is a holy God, a God that is not like us, a God who created the universe with his words, a God who the Bible tells us exists in unapproachable light, a God who told Moses that if he saw his face like Moses wanted to, he wouldn't be able to live. He would die on the spot. I think we've lost in understanding about what it means to fear God because we don't often hear sermons or hear podcasts that get us back to just the, the awesomeness and the majesty and the otherness of God. And sometimes it's hard because we don't have great language for it, right? We're limited in our language. But fearing God is knowing just who we're dealing with and letting the proper amount of awe and reverence and respect follow that knowledge. You ever notice this thing about kids and streets? Kids love streets. They love streets, right? Kids love cars. They act like cars are their friends for some reason, right? Right? they have no idea what they're dealing with. They don't. That's like us with God, right? Like kid's just running out into the street. Oh, a car, no big deal. It's probably made out of Nerf material. (laughs) But that's like us with God. We don't know who we're dealing with, so we go to God like he's one of many options that lie before us, even though, oddly, We don't do that with other things in life, right? None of y'all are going to call like 1-800-BRAIN-SURGEON when you need an operation on your brain. Why would you trust something that's less than the best care that you can receive? And when we do, we pay far more than the deal we thought we were getting. It's foolish. It's unstable to doubt the wisdom of God in our lives, thinking that Google has some better options available to us. And of course, this is where Jesus comes in for us. This is how Jesus helps us with this fearing God. Book of Colossians tells us who he is. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the face of God came to us in the person of Jesus who came to bring us near to God so that our sin wouldn't cause us to die separated from God. Only when Jesus has entered our hearts can the wisdom of God, who is Jesus, help us when we face trials and testing. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1:26. You just want to make a hard left there. Back a few books to 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to what Paul is telling the Corinthian church as he reminds them of who they are and what it is that Jesus means to them now that he has entered their hearts, and their life. This is what he says in verse 26. For consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if what Paul is saying is true, and we believe it is, then wisdom is becoming more like Jesus who came to us as the embodiment of God's wisdom. How do we gain this wisdom? Then first off, by becoming someone who is in Christ Jesus, like Paul points out. It's only when we are saved from our sin through salvation in Christ Jesus do we become more like Christ Jesus. And therefore, we will live and love like him. We'll have peace, and joy like him. We will have gentleness and self-control like him. We will have the fruit of wisdom. It's only when we've been transformed by Jesus do we gain the wisdom of God, who is Jesus. So wisdom is not simply being smarter. It's not being more clever. It's not quoting more scripture verses or even making decisions that are correct from a technical standpoint. In fact, Christians, according to what we just read in 1 Corinthians, will often make decisions that make no sense to someone who only sees life with a mind unaffected by a saving relationship with God. How many of you guys are old enough to remember those WWJD bracelets from 20 years ago? I'm so sorry. The problem with a bracelet that instructs us in this question of what would Jesus do is that everything we're, we're learning today would tell us it's not just about doing what Jesus would do, nor can we, nor should we. The real question, this is what James is bringing into our lives right now, is are we becoming like Jesus so that our actions flow from hearts transformed by wisdom? So this is what we want to ask here at the end is, where do you keep trying to purchase your wisdom? How much of it would you say has cost you over the years? So if wisdom is becoming like Jesus and if God gives generously to those who ask in faith, is there a pattern in your life of asking God for this wisdom? Do you seek this wisdom through the counsel of wise men and women who God has placed in your life? Or do you just kind of bull in a china shop your way through every decision? Do you believe, as Paul tells us in Philippians 4.19, that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus? Do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that about your father? So really, simply, this is what James is telling us. He's saying, go to God for everything. He would be saying to us, always pause to pray. He would say, know that you don't know. He would say, be open to reason. He would say, listen to others. James would say, humble yourself. He would say, avail yourself of the wisdom that surrounds you from friends, from the leadership of this church. Be aware of your pull toward instant gratification. Instead, follow the example of Christ, who waited, who prayed to the Father, who sought the wisdom of God in everything he did. Romans eight thirty two reminds us of one of the most important qualities of our Heavenly Father, which is that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like when you spend time with an old friend and you walk away thinking, I forgot how kind they are. I forgot how generous they are, how encouraging they are. I forgot how eager they are to help me in any way they can and you think I need to remember this you think I need to spend more time with them this is the heart of your Heavenly Father times infinity so discern that you lack wisdom rely on God's generosity guard against double mindedness the greatest wisdom God has for you today is his son, Jesus. As we face our trials in testing today, as you face your trials and your testing, will we as a church seek the face of Jesus and receive the help and the hope that has been generously given to us? Will we do that? Will we listen to these words of life and hope and grace, and mercy, and godliness. Will we do that? Let's pray that God would help us. Lord, we do ask you for wisdom like you just told us to. And we believe that you have the wisdom we need most specifically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, would you humble our hearts? Would you take away the instability that is characteristic of many of our lives? Would we instead trust and rely in your words to make decisions that come from this inner transformation that's happening, Lord, because you are constantly working in our lives. You are pushing us and pulling us towards Jesus, towards wisdom, towards one another. So God, would you continue to do that work in our hearts as a church that seeks you that denies itself, that follows you, carrying their cross, knowing that in all things, you are a generous God and Father to us, which we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name and together we said, amen.